welcome to the Fire Science Show episode 57. Hope you guys are having a great summertime and some fire science in between will not hurt <laughs> for sure. Today I have a subject that's quite difficult and me as well. I don't have great expertise in this. So I, I was very happy to learn firsthand from the world leading expert. And the topic is structural fire engineering and structural fire modeling, in fact. I've invited Professor Thomas Jeunet from John Hopkins University to bring me in line on the how structural fire engineering works, what's the newest developments in this field, and what's the future in front of that. Thomas is well known for his considerable amount of knowledge poured into the world of structural fire engineering literature, and he's involved with one of the primary structural fire engineering codes, that is SAFIR. So he has first-hand knowledge, not only from the perspective of a researcher, structural engineer, but also as someone who's developing new tools for us all to use. So that's a really great perspective. And you'll see through the interview that we're touching and referring to that all the time because his perspective is unique. So I hope that despite the little summer slack most of us have, we can join me in this episode and learn a bit about the importance of structural fire engineering and the role that it plays in a performance-based design framework. Yay, I guess that's enough of introduction. It's a good episode, you want to listen it to the end. It's well worth it. So let's spin the intro and jump into the episode. Welcome to the Fireside Show. My name is Wojciech Wienczyński and I will be your host. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Fire Science Show. You guys ask and I deliver. Here with me, Dr. Thomas Jernay from Johns Hopkins University. Hey, Thomas. Hey, Wojciech. How are you? I'm very good. I'm very happy to have you on the show and finally talk with someone about the numerical modeling of structures. For a nice start, I've heard there was a really nice event lately in Italy, a summer school on structural modeling, and I keep hearing about this event from everywhere. Like everyone is telling me how great it was. And I know the viewpoint of participants. Uh, you were one of the speakers there. So, so maybe you can uh, bring me in line. What, what what happened in Italy? Or unless what happens in Italy stays in Italy. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm happy to tell you all about it. And first of all, thank you so much for having me. It's a great pleasure. And I'm a, I'm a fan of your show. So yes, we had this week-long uh, summer school in Como, one of the you know, best places in the world. Really, really nice location. In May, that was organized by dear colleagues at the Politecnico di Milano, Roberto Felicetti and Patrick Bamonte, and Jean-Marc Francen was also involved. So the goal was to bring together 10 speakers for each of them delivering a half-day lecture on the topic you know, of their expertise and have PhD students and researchers from all over get the opportunity to either come in person or attend remotely. And it was very interactive and productive. It was very nice to be in a room together and being able not only to teach about a topic uh, close to what I've been interested in recently, but also get the feedback and the discussion and get to know what all these researchers are working on. And I mean, definitely lots of very exciting topics, looking at new problems. So just all this structural fire engineering community coming together was great. Fantastic. Um, so 
Yeah, I got to talk about the burnout resistance of structures, mm -hmm. which is a topic I've been researching for quite a long time, actually, that started with my PhD work where I worked on the development of numerical model for the behavior of concrete at elevated temperature. And I paid particular attention to what happens during the cooling down phases. We wanted to make sure that we were capturing uh, irreversible processes and damage and transient creep and all these stuff. And so with these models, then we became mm. able to model more accurately what happened during cooling and whether there was a, a risk of delayed failure. And, and since then, it has nice. evolved into modeling all types of structures during heating and cooling and developing a framework to understand when there is a risk of delayed collapse. So. That, that was about Italy, yeah. That's a great topic, and I, I have a feeling we're going to touch on it a lot in this episode. And I've asked about the summer school because there's a lot of young fire engineers listening, a lot of uh, researchers, uh, students, graduates, postgraduates, PhD students, postdocs. If you ever wonder if it is worth to go summer school, it is worth it totally. From my experiences with summer schools, it is absolutely amazing way to, to get the knowledge probably the best way, even better than my podcast, I would say. <laughs> but yeah, never mind that. Okay, uh, so let's go back to your PhD thesis. You said you were developing numerical models, and I also know you are involved in development of SAFIR, one of the more popular codes in structural fire engineering. So as we venture into the world of numerical modeling and structural fire engineering, maybe you can tell me like the story why there was a need for a new code to be built. Or you just wanted a new yacht and and yeah, and a home at the Italy coast from that. Well, that's a good motivation too. <laughs> <laughs> well, certainly, I'm happy to tell this story because I think it's a nice one and a timely one. So, my PhD thesis situated. So we are talking about like 2009, 2012, that range, and the tensile membrane action was a big topic since I would say one, one decade earlier, right? It had originated with the observations at Cardington in the 1990s with the BRE and, and all the research in the UK and Professor Wang, Professor Bailey, you know, doing those seminal findings at the beginning of the 2000s. And so it became clear that there was really a, a need to be able to model entire structural systems and the behavior and not only the structural frame, but that the behavior of concrete and the concrete slabs became also something that, that matters and that influenced the response. So with the tensile membrane actions, you mean the way how uh, slabs will respond to the load, how they would carry the forces in the building and how important part they take in like the general structural stability of the building. So not just the frame, but also everything that connects the frame. Yeah. Exactly. Yes. Good point. So let me backtrack. Exactly. Yeah. So at the Cardington test, what was done is that uh, in the 1990s, the BRE, they tested entire buildings yeah. subjected to natural fire, right, to a fire. And so that was the first or one of the first time, you know, that they really investigated the behavior of the structural system as opposed to testing isolated members in, in furnaces. Mm -hmm. And what was observed is that the behavior as a whole was much more favorable and you had this redundancy and those alternate load paths that you could activate. So you end up with structurally behavior that's more robust than you would predict based on single member's behavior. For example, you could leave some of the steel mm. beams with no thermal insulation, right? They would have exhibit large deflections. But when you get those large deflections in the floors that 
go with them, that deflect with them, you start activating tension in the reinforcement that's embedded in the concrete. And so this steel reinforcement remains cold. It's protected by the concrete of the slab. But if it is designed properly, now you can carry the loads with this alternate load pass and this mm-hmm. uh, in this deformed shape, which becomes really interesting because it means you have a robust behavior that's really embedded in the structure that doesn't require insulation from the thermal action. So with this realization, they started to be, you know, development of numerical models to try reproduce this behavior and understand it, and then work towards design methods, analytical methods. But so Saphir was already around, and I want to come back a little bit later mm-hmm. on how it had been uh, developed originally, right? But when I started my PhD, I would say the behavior of concrete had not been so important before, you know, before 2009-ish. But there started to be all this research on tensile membrane action and large-scale European research projects. And we really wanted to have something robust and accurate to capture what was happening in those concrete floors uh, when they were undergoing tensile membrane action, large displacements heating and cooling and so on. So that was really the motivation to fill this gap in the computational modeling tools at that time to have accurate models for concrete in multi-axial stress states subjected to heating and cooling and so on. Mm. So before that, it means Safir was was already around and other software as well, of course, to start modeling you know, structural fire behavior. And I think that started in the late 1980s and mostly in the 1990s. The idea was that, of course, to achieve fire safety of the built environment, you have those different layers Mm -hmm. of safety that you want to rely on, right? So you want prevention, you want active fire protection and so on. But as a last resort, you really have the structural uh, fire response. And for quite some time, structural engineers did not really focus much on the structural fire response. And fire protection engineers probably had the oversimplified way of thinking about structural fire response. And my PhD advisor, Jean-Marc Francais Rest, told me the story of first time he visited to the US, I think, and he, he got to he was a young mm-hmm. engineer expert in structural fire behavior, but starting and he got to speak with somebody working on the fire dynamics, fire protection engineer. And basically they were asking him, okay, can you tell me the critical temperature of your structure? Right? Because I can do the heat transfer, I can find the temperature. So if you tell me the temperature at which your structure fails, you know, we are all set. We don't need to look more into the structural fire response. So it was this idea that it's a purely thermal problem, basically, which is it is not, of course. But, and, but it still is treated like that in many cases with drawing isotherms inside beams or even the concept of charring depth and, and loss of area of timber parts. So it still is in a way considered like a thermal problem. And if you Think about it, like, let me tap to what you said. In Cardington, they did the, for the first time the full building, but Cardington was like in 1990s and we were doing structural fire engineering for 100 years back then. Already, we've, we've been doing it with furnaces. In, in a furnace, in essence, unless you have a loaded element, that's a little different when you have loaded element and depends on how you connect the element to the furnace and in, in terms of what, what the free end is and, and how it can react. But in, in a great simplification, the fire test is a thermal test. Like, essentially, you t- test the thermal behavior of your system and all the criteria y- you have are, in a way, related to, to the thermal response, especially the insulation and the capability to, to keep the smoke sealed in, in, inside the compartment, not spread through openings, cracks. So, 
we are still very in the element and, and thermal response paradigm. So you want to say that, that that numerical modeling was a way to break this paradigm or or escape it in a way? Absolutely, yes, you're right. We're still relying on this uh, simplification in most of the case and very largely in the field. And as you say, numerical modeling is actually a way to overcome this simplification and start investigating the actual anticipated structural response under these thermal demands. And that is important because we observe that in many cases, the thermal approach itself or the element approach and looking at these isotherms does not answer important questions or does not really predict what the in-situ behavior is going to be. So the tensile membrane action was kind of the first or very remarkable example of that, where you can actually leave uh, the temperature mm. go much higher in some of in part of your structural frame and still have a very robust behavior. And so that opens the door to not only optimization and economic savings in terms of thermal insulation, but also understanding really the safety level of your building, as well as having a behavior that's very robust because this load-bearing capacity is really embedded in the structure. There are many other examples where numerical modeling will give you information that is inaccessible mm -hmm. with uh, element testing and based only on the thermal response. So I mentioned briefly that I was talking about burnout resistance uh, mm -hmm. during the summer school in Como, and actually we can rebound on this. So if you start looking at the structural response throughout the different phases of the fire, and you are interested in maintaining stability to full burnout, uh, because a structural collapse would not be acceptable, because you are concerned about fire service intervention, uh, resilience, and so on, then you start uh, having to model what happens during the different phases, including during the cooling. And the notion of critical temperature really does not make sen much sense anymore because you will have a delayed temperature increase in different parts of the section. And you have, for example, if we, if we think about a timber section, you might have the charring that stops, but you still have the heat wave that goes toward the core of the section, which will lead to additional reduction of the load-bearing capacity, maybe at temperatures lower than the charring temperature, but still higher than what the, the material can really support without being uh, say, damaged or reduced. So in that sense, you really need this capability to model structures in fire because either you want to quantify safety, you want to optimize design, you want to look at stability to full burnout or many other, other situations really. The other thing that immediately comes to my mind is traveling fires and the concept of like four hour fire resistance. Like there, there is like no way fire can be in the same place for four hours is like that. That would be insane amount of fuel load in one place. Actually, you can um, have fun and try to do the calculations. We were once calculating how much fuel load you would need to, to create standard condition on a ceiling of an airport and we came to conclusion it would have to be like literally stacks of trucks filled with like IKEA furniture on top of each other reaching almost to the ceiling to, to have this four hour fire at this super tall position. But now now back to traveling fires. I had a, an episode with Guillermo Rain about traveling fires and everyone's highly recommended to go back to that one. I'll link in the in the show notes to learn about the method itself. The thing is that there is tons of possible outcomes of the fires. There are fires that will travel very quickly. 
which means they will be very high intensity fires, but they, they will burn through the fuel very quickly. There will be fires that are slow, which burn slowly through the fuel, but they also spread slower uh, and they can go from left to right, from right to left, from middle out, from out to middle. There, there's hundreds of, or, 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 th- or actually there's limitless amount of ways how, how a fire can go through the building. Even with, if you're not modeling, if, you, if you're just assuming some, some sort of fire behavior as traveling fire is such a simplified model. And now, now you end up with hundreds of, or thousands, of, tens of thousands of scenarios to investigate. And there is absolute, like your fire resistance is just one data point. That is it. That's your data point to one time temperature relation in a certain amount of time within this boundary conditions of this particular furnace in this particular laboratory. That is pretty much the answer you have. And you have 10,000 scenarios to go through and compare. So, so no, no way you can relate that. We try, but it's hard. While in numerical modeling, you, you can probably just test them all or just figure out which are the worst. Like you also have experiences in, in this application? or what Was it also something you have considered back then when you joined the SAFR team? I guess traveling fires was not the thing because I think it was just about to begin in, in this time. But you short, hot or long, cold, Eurocode fires, localized fires were there for sure. Absolutely. It's a great point point to bring because I was telling the story of the mm-hmm. fire protection engineer who asked us for one critical temperature as if it would summarize the response of the structure. Mm-hmm. But we structural engineers also uh, may tend to oversimplify and, and ask you know, the biodynamician uh, to, to provide us with a standard fire curve and think that it will capture all the possible fire behaviors and we can work only with that. And of course, that's not the case. And as Guillermo has, has shown with some papers where he showed that the traveling fires can challenge the structure to, to an extent that is different, and in some cases more onerous than, uh, I would say, compartment fire conditions. And also, uh, the opposite way, there are many situations where once you model the fire behavior based on what we would call the physically based fire, or formerly called natural fires, you find that the conditions may be less onerous than with the standard fire or full post-flashover fire, and that also opens opportunities for design optimization or even enabling architectural designs when, you know, if an architect wants some exposed steel or exposed timber, and it really makes sense to look at what are the realistic fire scenarios that could develop in this type of structure and then mm. investigate the response of the structure under those fires rather than look at what we are using in, in standard furnace tests, exactly. So absolutely, t- to your point, this development of structural fire engineering also worked alongside developments of fire models for structural engineers. And a lot of the, in the end, impact that it has had on, on practice and where really we could see a value of adopting these analysis was linked not only to a better understanding of the structural fire response, but also more realistic representation of what fire scenarios might be. So that's, I think that that's key. Um, But I think more generally, to your point also, I wanted to compare with what we do in standardized furnace testing versus Mm -hmm. what numerical models enable us to do. So in civil engineering and buildings, we are not dealing with mass production products, right? We are not building mm-hmm. iPhones or, or cars uh, where we have the luxury to build a few specimens that we will test full scale because we are just building you know, millions of them. But on the opposite, buildings are, are all unique. So 
it will never be an option to build an entire building aside the actual building we want to use and set it on, on fire. Mm -hmm. So what we are doing in a sense is that we are just taking a few components and, and applying a standardized furnace test and extrapolating that it will inform us on the behavior of the, of the full building. As if, I would say, in a car crash worthiness test, we are just testing you know, the bumper and maybe a few components mm -hmm. and then trying to understand how the car would react in the actual crash test. And besides, all buildings are different. So you, you would test the bumper and you would extrapolate that maybe it's, it mm -hmm. informs you on the, the Opel Astra and on the BMW, BMW Series 5 the, the same way, right? So we are never going to do that through exper experimental testing for the buildings. Yeah. So really, computational models make a lot of sense <clears> because there you can build these you know, digital trends and challenge them against lots of types of conditions and all those fire scenarios that you mentioned. I would put one more thing on, on standard testing. Many people don't like this way of talking about standard testing, but it is in a way a reality. You have to consider standardized testing in relation to product. Like it is a standardized product testing. It was never meant to be a test of a building. It wasn't because it fits so tightly within the framework of product being certified before it is delivered to the market. So the market understands the core characteristics of the product. And that's exactly the need that fire testing in the laboratory caters for. And, and, and therefore, because we, we have this as a standard product testing, the manufacturers use this as a ranking tool or, you know, it's a way to compete. Ah, my product has this classification, yours has other ones, so mine is better. It, it gives you a fairly easy way to, to overlook the market. Ah, there's like only one product that has this specific parameter and every other is where, so, so I'll use this one. And it also is a very attractive way for non specialist stakeholders to, to put a product because they, they have no idea, but the code says this product of this characteristic is just enough for your building. So, so it like th this is a whole framework fit around delivering products to market that cater to specific needs and can be distinguished by the characteristics. Whereas a building does not have a, a single uh, response fire, fire resistance characteristic. Uh, like you said, it, it can burn and, and collapse in probably thousands of ways. And each of them will be different, very specific. And uh, the job of structural engineer like you is to make sure that in a prob probable scenarios, it does not collapse or, or that um, maybe even more that there is no disproportionate collapse. Like it, very small fire doesn't collapse it because if you, if a meteor strikes your building, then it's not going to probably. <laughs> Uh, survives. Here is this fork between the product market and the building market. It's just in eyes of many people, it's the same market where it not necessarily is. However, I, I still find, but you still don't do structural engineering like that for every single building, right? There, there, there are like Kegri type buildings that you just take from the book. Absolutely. And so, yeah, also let me make a few things clear. First of all, I mean, standardized furnace testing is tremendously important and it has elevated mm -hmm. the baseline of safety, right? It's yeah. been a great answer to a true problem at the beginning of the 20th century. It has brought amazing benefits. And even for us, you know, working on computational modeling, experimental testing is an absolutely crucial component to validate our models whenever a new material 
are developed, we need the data. We cannot just extrapolate material models. Mm. We have to have those those data points. So all this, absolutely. And sometimes as we speak, I would say push on the limitations to make clear why we do what we do and what's the value added. But it doesn't mean that there are lots of rationale also for continuing doing those, those standardized tests. But I mean, I agree with what you said. It's really in going further than certifying these products and understanding or rating the behavior of, of these you know, beams and columns and doors and so on. But how do we scale that up and how do we re-interrogate the true safety level of the assembly of the system once we build the building out of these components? And that is something that we don't have the luxury to look at through full-scale experimental testing because in civil engineering, we are building unique uh, objects, right? So I argue that computational modeling is really the tool to bridge this gap and to go to that mm. higher level. And as you said, there are many ways that a fire can challenge a structure. And we need to make sure that what we are building is robust when it's in, I mean, the true conditions and subjected to physically based fire. And when we are looking at performance objectives that might go beyond a standardized rating, a one hour or two hour standard fire resistance, but we might need to demonstrate survival to full burnout or the fact that the damage remains localized and we mm. don't have this kind of progressive collapse as you were uh, referring to and so on. Yes. And in the interface be between fire testing and full-scale behavior, you use fire testing as validation and as a way to obtain data on, on the materials, on structural behavior. But in the end, when you go into numerical modeling, of a building, if we can jump in, into that part, are you still like using the standard curve as your boundary condition, or would you go like with your code, your localized fire? How do you like you, you have your properties of your materials and stuff? How do you define fire in, in structural fire engineering then? So, when we apply computational modeling for predicting the behavior of a structure in fire, and as you said before, it's not for every small building or every case. But when we do so, usually we frame it in the context of performance-based fire design, right? So mm -hmm. it means that we start by uh, setting up objectives, performance objectives for uh -huh. design. So explicitly, we have to define what we are trying to achieve or what we want, what conditions we want the structure to survive and what failure means and what a successful design is, because that will be different for all structures. As I said before, for some, we may want to demonstrate survival to full burnout mm -hmm. of the fires and for others, a certain duration of stability or yet other objectives. So then at the, the second step, we will work on design fires. And in this context of performance-based fire design, usually we don't rely on the standard fire curve, which really has another purpose. So once we are going with modeling, we are interested in trying to predict realistic or physically based fires that, that would develop given the conditions and what we know of the inputs for the building. And so we might have to check both post-flashover fires and localized slash traveling fires, depending on the geometry of the compartment, ventilation conditions, the fuel, and so on. It is not enough to consider one design fire because there are so many uncertainties involved. A robust performance-based design will rely on a a series of design fires and, and look at the effects of variation of these inputs. 
Usually, it's good practice to, in any case, check a localized fire that might be very close to a colon, for example, uh-huh. which will always occur at the beginning, right at the early stage of the fire. And then the, the full growth and development of that fire possibly transitioning to flashover. We know, of course, for example, ventilation assumptions will have a big impact also. So there is some guidance uh, to look at when windows will break and so how you can have your ventilation condition suddenly change when the gas temperature reaches a certain value, these type of things. Um, so first, performance objectives. Second, design fires. And then we go with the thermal structural response of, of the structure oh, wait, 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 wait. Yes. You have the assumptions, but you don't have the fire modeling yet. So you would go with like some uh, simple hand calculations, a zone model. I, I don't think CFD, but because I, I think that would be very rare. So, so how you go from assumptions to thermal? <laughs> You're right. I didn't mention it, but no, we have access to the full suite of tools there. So we can do analytical methods, kind of Eurocode parametric mm-hmm. fire that we have commonly used, for example, in probabilistic risk assessment analysis. Mm-hmm. We want a lot of scenarios and really look at this variability of conditions. For Sorry, localized fire, you, yes? you can also go traveling fire, like we've mentioned before, where Absolutely. you would have a plethora of scenarios which are like pre-generated for your geometry with a very simple model of different complexity depending which you use. Yeah, Absolutely. So analytical model for post-flashover or traveling fire or localized fire. So in the Eurocode, we are usually relying on models in the Eurocode. You have Hazemi, you have mm. uh, Eskostat, you have now Locafi, uh, which will go, be included in the next version of Eurocode, which is a solid flame model to capture the heat radiation to a member that is outside of the fire. Mm-hmm. We have so the traveling fire models that you mentioned also with some very elegant and, and relatively simple solutions. But we also use FDS. And actually one of the uh, not so recent anymore, but relatively recent development in Saphir was to facilitate the transfer between output data from FDS mm-hmm. and the thermal structural analysis. So Usually, there are two techniques that we would use to couple CFD simulation, and I'm talking about FDS interchangeably because that's really the most common, with uh, FEM analysis. We can use the concept of adiabatic surface temperature developed by by Wickstrom, and we've done that. So we have all those sensors around our, our structure. We need to make sure we have enough of them to capture thermal gradients, to capture shadow effects, and so mm-hmm. on. And uh, But if when we are looking at... at Modeling a, a larger structure, for example, we've used in open car parks uh, simulations and these type of things, where we have lots of structural members and we would need a lot of, of sensors. We have also the option to use automatic interface file. So it was developed with the developers of FDS. Actually, we can ask FDS to write a transfer file as an output of the simulation that will output the, the gas temperature and radiant intensities along lots of directions in space at, I mean, spatial coordinates in a domain that we define. And Saphir can read this transfer file and uh, use that as input thermal boundary conditions for the heat transfer analysis in the sections. And that has the advantage that it's automatized, so it's well suited when you have a big structure and uh, it captures the shadow effect. It it sees the view angles and, and everything to capture radiation appropriately. This is brilliant. I didn't know about that. I actually, I'm like in ANSYS ecosystem, so I know a bit on FDS because of my hobby. I have to follow that, but I'm not like everyday user of FDS outside of scientific research. 
And it sounds like a really, really nice development. Uh, some time ago, I was thinking like what has changed in like last 10 years when I work in this field and not that much has changed. But this is something like really a huge quality of life improvement that really allows you for seeming less uh, connection between your fluid and structure model. That, that's very interesting. And have you tried anything uh, in the... In, in, I know in Ansys ecosystem, I, I am not, have not mastered this functionality yet. One of my colleagues in the office is playing, but we have like two-way coupled uh, interactions. So if like the structure, let's say you have a steel sheet roof and if the roof fails, you have a hole and that hole is then transferred from my structural model to fluid model. So the fluid model in, in, incorporates that the way how uh, this hole would change the flow fields. But I guess that that's quite complicated, probably difficult, especially if you have within the one ecosystem. It is complicated. That's something we, we have not addressed yet, but it is relevant for certain applications. You mentioned an example. There are, of course, other examples where this two-way feedback or two-way coupling makes sense. I would say fundamentally, when I'm describing this these developments, it really comes from a, a realization on our behalf and people working in structural fire engineering that a lot of the advances and the gaps were at the intersection of the disciplines, as is often the case in you know in engineering and science. So, I told you earlier the story of the fire protection engineers who ask for the critical temperature and the, the structural engineer who ask for the the standard fire resistance or fire curve. So we saw that value was in connecting those two worlds and making it easier in terms of the numerical modeling ecosystem to bridge and couple the advanced fire models with the advanced structural simulations. So we are putting a lot of efforts on these. And right now we have all these options for the one-way coupling from the fire to the structure. What you describe is a very interesting future mm -hmm. development that can possibly, you know, is making even more important and I would say timely now with the use of combustible building materials and this tension between sustainability and fire safety that, that we are observing. And Professor Luke Bisbee had a, had a great uh, kind of position paper on this, the fact that we are innovating fast to address the climate emergency and we are doing those changes in the way we build structure and we use material and and we have the example with facades, the example with mass timber and so on. And there are implications for fire safety. And we need to make sure while we address this very important momentous, right, a challenge of climate crisis, that also it's not at the expense of public safety. And I think computational modeling is a tremendous role to play there because innovation goes so fast. We need to predict what the implications are going to be and what challenges it poses for fire behavior, including structural fire behavior. But in some cases, there might be a question of two-way coupling that you are mm. describing. It's obvious that exposed timber is going to fuel the fire and affect the fire dynamic as well as having you know, the load-bearing function that it has and so on. And there are, there are other examples where you might have the structural response affect the fire dynamics and, and thermal environment. It's also important in um, other questions, for example, I would say compartmentation issues and even failure of non-load-bearing uh, walls and compartment boundaries. That this is also something that right now we cannot really predict with those computational models. But as we were talking about traveling fire, it might be interesting to have the capability to predict if 
due to large deflections of the load-bearing structure, it might damage some non-load-bearing walls, and then the mm. fire can travel to the next compartment. So there are still lots of very interesting and uh, challenging questions to explore. For me, one of the most interesting is the behavior of, of glazing, because it's something that we are very highly reliant on in our modeling, and, and not always we're very explicit about it, because uh, we just assume an opening factor, which is usually related to the glazed area. Assuming that it's going to fall off, which not necessarily is the case, and uh, modern glazing is, is showing more challenges. Did you have any solutions for that in, in Safir, like special models or, or something? We don't explicitly model usually the glazing. We don't yeah. we don't model non-load bearing members. So traditionally, it's a very practical answer. So, sorry, so, so that goes back to the your assumptions and the, the thermal model that is run before the thermal structural model, yeah? That's right. So a practical answer is that there, there is a guidance in the Luxembourgis annex to the Eurocode, which is a very just pragmatic way of approaching this question of glazing and changing ventilation. So in the Luxembourg annex, they give a temperature of the gas at which a certain ratio of the windows get broken, depending on the type, if it's simple, double, triple glazing or reinforced glazing. Um, and they also prescribe doing a few scenarios. So, for example, they would say, run a scenario where 90% of your uh, windows are open from the start, but then another scenario where they are closed. But I don't know, I remember you know, 30% that opens when the gas goes to 200 degrees C and then 90% when it goes to 300 degrees C. It just gives you a framework such that you, first of all, you check different scenarios because we know the fire conditions and the demand will be very different depending on those inputs. So again, one design fire is not enough. And also, you, while you have some guidance, everybody does you know the same, and, and it's, it is linked, it is correlated to failure temperature of glazing based mm -hmm. on thermal gradients on the, on the surface. But it's not a detailed modeling of the... Yeah, th of, fantastic. Of the Thank you for this robust answer. This, I was also not aware of the Luxembourg Annex. I, I need to check that out because... It, it is something that I'm recently very interested at. I'm also uh, about to organize a nice guest on, on the glazing in, in the podcast. So that's also an episode to look for. Now I wanted to ask you, like, where is it going? Like, is there any particular direction that structural FSC modeling is going or Safir is, is heading? Like, how, how do you guys see the future? Will it be like more simulations, more answers? more probabilistic approach or maybe rather uh, going into route of optimization and trying to find the, the cheapest non-collapsible structure you can build given your boundaries. I, I wonder what, what's the hot topic now in the world of structural fire engineers? That's a great question, of course. And we are working really on a range of problems and always trying to move that forward. I think High level, I'm, I'm really convinced that numerical modeling is is a key enabler of you know everything we do in in, in civil engineering, structural yeah. engineering. Is we want to provide two things. We want to provide the tools, really the ecosystem that people can go and it's it's robust, it's validated, it's state of the art, and you can run those software to predict the response. And we also work on the framework, which is to understand how computational modeling can support and is linked to performance-based design, to probabilistic risk assessment, and these type of very important approaches that are used in not only fire safety engineering, but in general in, in structural design. So 
in the future, what, what we are really focusing on now, I would say maybe three things that I, I want to highlight. The first one is that there are always new materials and innovations that come on the market that are considered and understanding the fire safety implications of these are really critical. And uh, the, the, because if we don't, it can hinder the implementation of these in the market. So, I mean, we have you know amazing people doing developments to bring these new materials to uh, maybe be more environmentally friendly, but we, we need to be able to, to apply them. So we need to understand what the implication is for fire safety. And so that implies being able to model the thermal mechanical properties, the behavior of those materials. In some cases, when it's combustible material, it has I mean, uh, other challenges as well. And then how do we model the, these in structural system in building simulations, right? So that's that's really the, fir- the first point. The second one is, uh, as I was just hitting at, working on the frameworks. So I'm very interested in performance-based structural fire design, which means how do we go about this, this process of uh, defining performance objectives? So already lots of questions. What is appropriate performance level, what kind of targets, reliability should we strive for, what are the implications of looking at resilience of the built environment against fire, multi-hazard, so lots of questions there already. Mm-hmm. Then once we have the performance objective, we have to define the design fires, and we've talked about that. There are also lots of scenarios, and how uh, do we know which one to select, and then how do we make it easy to develop these and interface them with the sim- with the structural uh, simulation I, I love how the challenge is like at the philosophical level not necessarily related to like transferring loads or or modeling uh, non-linear thermal behavior of materials no we really have to sort out the scenarios and objectives this is the number that, that's like the need i i really love how you positioned it because it echoes so well with so much that has been said in the in the podcast i absolutely love it but sorry for interrupting you continue this <laughs> no no thanks Apri. but yeah, i think it's key absolutely it's both the tools and the framework how do we use the mm-hmm. tool we want to think very hard about that as well because providing the tools is not enough we want it to be robust we want it to make sense in terms of the risk assessment and the performance and so on so working on the design fire, still on, in my performance-based fire design, right? And then on the thermal structural modeling, mm-hmm. uh, there is a lot we can do. We've worked a lot this last decade and before, but there are, there, are, there are still things we cannot do. Modeling a CLT floor, we don't really have the element to do that right now. So, But it's it's used. People build buildings with that. So if mm-hmm. we want to model a structural system, that will be something more practical. We, we need a PhD to look at, a PhD student, I mean, to look for three, four years at how do we develop the type of shell elements and the material model and so on for this orthotropic behavior? So there are also these kind of questions, of course, that we are working on. Uh, so first was you know new materials enabling that. Second, the framework, the performance-based design, also probabilistic. I have not talked that much about it, but I've worked a lot with some incredibly smart uh, colleagues, such as uh, Ruben Van Kual and Danny Hopkin, uh, whom you mm-hmm. had here, uh, Negar Lamik Razani, uh, a good friend and amazing uh, researcher from University of Buffalo, Shunani, and, and others. And together, we really teamed up because it's a very big challenge to move structural fire engineering into the probabilistic risk assessment framework and make it very consistent in terms of how we think about risk, what type of reliability we design for, and so on. And because it requires exploring a range of scenarios, also computational modeling is the natural tools to mm. go around it. And so the third thing I would say when you ask me about what's the future, mm. it's really more forward-looking. Now, maybe I'm talking about 
20, 30 years down the road. But I'm, I think we have this capability for modeling the nonlinear response, thermal, structural, you know, multi-physics of buildings against fire, and that is great. But right now, it still requires a lot of expertise, and it's only done for some kind of iconic structures when you have the time and money and, and expertise. Many people are working on other aspects of uh, the built environment with digital tools, with numerical tools. So we have linear elastic uh, software for the structural response, but more broadly, we have BIM, mm -hmm. and we have the ability to track the construction process. And moving forward, we need to do more about circular economy and sustainability, reusability. So probably there will be digital ecosystems to track really all the components of these buildings and how they go together and so on. I think that in the future, we should be able to, again, interface and couple and put together uh, these different types of numerical models. And basically, I think we will move toward having digital twins for all complex objects, aircrafts, buildings, and so on. And maybe we'll have in the metaverse or, or whatever, we'll have the same cities that we have here, but with this digital twin object that allows us to track all the resources, components, and so on, but also to interrogate the response against extreme hazards, fire, earthquakes, and so on. And as the conditions are changing, the climate is changing, we can change the stressors and we can change the demand and so on. But I think structural fire modeling cannot stay apart from all those other digital efforts. And basically, we should have a, a digital ecosystem where we put everything together for modeling buildings and ensuring they are sustainable and they are resilient. Based on my experience with how BIM is incorporated, actually, the, the structural engineering part makes a lot of sense to couple that. So maybe it's not even, maybe it's not even decades, maybe it's just years ahead of us to, to have a, at least this part coupled because coupling with, with CD modeling is probably a little harder because of other challenges. The main being you build model for a certain purpose and architect drawing the building or engineer drawing their structural model has a different purpose than see the engineer. It's just that simple and that problematic. Absolutely. It still requires a lot of human thinking to know how to model mm. a structure for the purpose of structural fire engineering because you have to think about the heat transfer problem then the structural response. So you discretize your structure in a certain way. And it's not just lines on, on a sheet of paper that mm. you can extract. Right? You have to have a kind of information and data that today we don't have mm. in, in other uh, pieces of this digital workflow. But as I look you know, back decades and then I look forward several decades, I'm sure we'll find solutions for these kind of challenges. But indeed, it's, it's not trivial because as you say, you right now, each of these tools have a very specific purpose. And so you have to have an engineer who think about what's the right modeling approach to target this purpose. And so to uh, replace that or to, to harmonize that which requires some lots of research. And how do you feel about the emergence of AI as a support tool in the structural fire engineering? I'm glad you bring that up. That that could definitely help. I think we are still playing with the concept and trying to see where opportunities lie, but if we start being systematic about the data and collecting and classifying the data, I, I don't see why AI could not help in this field in the way it has helped in, in others, right? So uh, mm -hmm. I think we are still 
relatively in the early stage of the, the field of structural fire engineering. And we are still looking at these philosophical questions that you were mentioning, right? That at a high level, we still don't have really the answers about, or we do have the answers, but we have to think hard about the scenarios and the performance objectives in all cases. It's not really codified yet, but as this become embraced more and more, and as we move toward more systematism there, I think that AI could also uh, come in and help. I hate doing this podcast. Like, you know, I ask people to talk about their fancy tools and the most impressive stuff they've done. And it always ends up like we don't understand our objectives. Our safety is horrible. We need to start our objectives, guys. Come on. I want more exciting stuff in the podcast than just bragging about how we don't. But uh, yeah, that, that is the, the sad reality. Like that is the unfortunate truth that uh, we spend so much money and effort on many, many fancy things and minuscule improvements in secondary mo models where we don't have a fundamental question answered, like, do we want our structures to resist burnout or not? And, and how to choose if we want it? We have not answered the question of what design fire and at what probability is, is good for this building and how it would be for another building. It's overwhelming, but I'm happy. We have lots of work. Uh, future of fire engineers is bright. <laughs> well, these are complex questions, but to some extent, because there is such a multiplicity of, of yeah. buildings and projects and uh, yeah. jurisdictions and, and everything, right? I think what is key is to really move forward in providing the tools and the framework to both approach these questions in a systematic way. Once we make the decision, we want to go that way, such as performance-based. And then the tools to enable the assessments to be rigorous and rooted in the physics. And that's really what computational modeling does, that it gives you an understanding of the physics of the problem in terms of how the fire is going to develop and then how the structure is going to respond, right? As opposed to taking a simplified model, which is very useful for benchmarking, but which does not give you these insights and the sensitivity and so on. But it's true that then you move to the higher level and it becomes a human decision problem. And so we cannot formalize it the same way as engineers because you need to t speak with the stakeholders and it will depend on the economics and on the social and so on. So uh, it's, it's true that it can seem frustrating, but to some extent, I think it's once you move the needle from the, the engineering problem to, to more of the technical social problems that is just different different considerations i wonder if in 50 years we'll still be thinking in mindset of fire resistance and how we'll develop i'm happy to view as this develops thomas it was a great talk to you i'm very thankful for taking me into the world of structural fire engineering and i'm, I'm sure it was interesting probably more interesting to non-structural fire engineers because we finally got an insight to how you guys do your job. So yeah, huge thanks. And I hope to see you here again with another interesting subject. Well, thank you. It was just really my, my pleasure. I had lots of fun discussing and I hope to see you soon and maybe at a summer school. <laughs> that I would love that. Thank you very much. And that's it of this episode. I thought about making a fancy outro as usual, but in fact, the end of this discussion has pretty much covered it all. We're talking about fancy tools, AI, BIM integration and other stuff while we don't have objectives and design scenarios fixed. And that's kind of devastating, <laughs> really. I feel really sad about the fact that we still do not have this seemingly simple, but as Thomas said, quite complex stuff 
figured out. And if you're a researcher in the field and you want to find a place where you can make great impact, well, there it is. This is a much needed place for research. And while we are developing that, structural fire engineering is there to help us understand the behavior of the whole structures. I hope we've pretty well highlighted the difference between the performance of a member, performance of a single element in your building, and the performance of the whole building itself. The example of Cardington and the membrane action in the slabs is a perfect example of that. How different it is, like if we just focus on performance of single members as we usually do, how do you understand the performance of the whole structure? How it will behave in the fire? Will it behave better? Will it behave worse? Yeah, luckily, the current experience is that they usually behave better. And Thomas mentioned that these actions that were found made the buildings more robust. So even some requirements could have been softened down on secondary members. It's really interesting how understanding fire science can significantly improve the way how we design structures. Thomas also mentioned there's new Eurocodes coming up. And for those who don't know, Eurocodes is a series of standards in European Union. They're free to access, publicly available, and they have plenty of information on structural engineering and structural fire engineering with all modern materials. I really found interesting that he mentioned the Luxembourg Annex to Eurocode, which covers glass and I must really jump into that because it's a super interesting topic to me at this point. I hope it was not too heavy for summer break, but I guess fire science is just great. Even if it's even if it's hard, it's still great. I hope you've enjoyed this episode and I hope to see you and I hope to see you here again next Wednesday. Thank you. Cheers. This was the Fire Science Show. Thank you for listening and see you soon.